Hey, everyone, this week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast is brought to you by our sponsors at New Wave, who are bringing to you and to me flow state coffee. Now, think of being in a flow state as kind of like being in the zone. You know what I mean? It's a mental state where you are running on optimal performance and you are getting your shit done. That's what this is. It's coffee with a little bit of raw cacao and L-theanine, which is an amino acid that naturally reduces stress and anxiety. And when combined with the caffeine of the coffee, it puts you into that flow state where you can be fully immersed with an energized focus that helps the creative types like you and me get our shit done. Let me help you get 10% off your first order of Flow State Coffee from New Wave by going to N-O-O-W-A-V-E dot C-O slash B-E-R-M-A-N. That's newwave.co slash Berman and get 10% off your first order. All right, let's get it. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Mr. Jeff Berman. It's good to be with you. My guest this week is Jeff Abarta. He doesn't wear regular shoes. Jeff wears Birkenstocks. Jeff Ataf. I I think Jeff Abarta is the most well-known punk rock Jeff there is, and it's not because he's even known for playing in a band, which he's in a great band, mind you. Shout out to Total Massacre. They're an L.A. hardcore band, and they're fucking great. And Jeff is their bass player. So, Jim, if you're listening, <laughs> send the check in the mail. <laughs> but yes, Jeff Abarta from Epitaph Records, who was somewhat immortalized in a NoFX song in the early 90s that millions of people sing along to. And maybe they know it's about this guy, maybe they don't but I had the pleasure of sitting down with them, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. This week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast is also brought to you by our sponsors and friends at High Spirit Shirts, who are making hand-spun tie-dye t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Now, I love High Spirit Shirts, and you can find them on Instagram at High Spirit Shirts because they have bailed me out many a time when I needed a gift for someone and I didn't know what to get them. You know, we all have those people in our lives, like, they're so fucking hard to shop for. They're just the worst. Well, go to at High Spirit Shirts on Instagram. Take a look at what they do. And you can get a tie-dye shirt. You can get a plain shirt with some cool lettering. Maybe it's an inside joke between you and this person. And your gift will be the best gift that they receive. Trust me. Case in point, I received a gift from somebody that was a tie-dye t-shirt with lettering on it that just said, Greg sucks. Now, it's not all Greggs. There are many great Greggs out there. But this one particular Greg does actually suck. And he's probably listening to this podcast right now. And he knows exactly who he is. But every time I wear this shirt, the Greg Sucks t-shirts that I got from at High Spirit Shirts on Instagram, every single one of my friends totally pops for it. It always gets a laugh. It always gets a smile. It's great. I cannot recommend High Spirit Shirts enough. So visit them at High Spirit Shirts on Instagram. And get yourself an awesome t-shirt, an awesome sweatshirt, a baby onesie, a beer koozie. Anyway, at High Spirit Shirts on Instagram. So once again, here's my interview with lifelong Angelino, longtime Epitaph Records employee, 
and current bass player of the great band Total Massacre. It was a pleasure to talk to Mr. Jeff Abarta. Enjoy. Are you from L.A. originally? Yeah, you I'm born there? and raised L.A. My family's actually been in L.A. since like the 1840s. Do you know how many generations that is? Uh, many. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly. You know, uh, what do they say? Every 20 years is a generation. So I, I guess, um, yeah. I mean, how are you able to ancestrally trace it back to, to somebody? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, really? You know, I'm not sure who the first person was, um, but there's stories about a woman named Lestenia Abarta. Um, she even had my same last name and everything. Um, she, in, 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 I think, 1880, shot and killed a guy named Chico Forrester, who was the nephew of Pio Pico, mm-hmm. who was the last Mexican governor of California. Killed him in broad daylight, um, right out front of the uh, Civic Center building downtown. Sure. Because they were, I guess they were dating and um, she, he wouldn't marry her. I forget exactly what she, he wouldn't marry her or, or something like that. So she, um, she shot him right in the eye, <laughs> dropped him, dropped him dead. But the funny part is, is she was acquitted Whoa. because, um, because science back then was not what it is today. And they determined that because she was <laughs> going through her menstrual cycle, that she was not stable. She was not of and sound she, mind. <laughs> right. And she was acquitted for that. Oh, my you can goodness. That shit. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was 1880? So, something like that. 1880, 1881, somewhere in there. I've got a newspaper article that they ran in the LA Times about it. It's oh, pretty, my goodness. Pretty interesting. Yeah. It's such a beautiful name. Lestania? Lestania, yeah. My, and my dad has done all the sort of the family stuff. You know, that's kind of how we learned this story. He, yeah. He did all the ancestral legwork for me so, which shit. is great because i don't i don't have the patience do you ever just like in your in your kind of weaker feel no pain moments just hold that over people's heads because la is you know la is just full of transplants and you're just like motherfucker well go you back know, to hermosa I mean, in, i've been here for yeah right seven generations yeah. <laughs> um you know, it's, it, I don't think I hold it over people's heads, but I do think I, I do point it out to people every time I hear someone say, Oh, I a bunch of transplants. Like, yeah, that's not entirely true, man. You yeah. Know? Not entirely so. true. Well, that's, that's great. Well, it's, it's great to, to catch up with you. You're somebody that it's like, we were kind of in the same circle for years. And then once Total Massacre really started to, to play shows, I felt like I saw you more frequently and we were able to, to talk a few times. The work that you've done at Epitaph and, and, your kind of involvement in, in all the hats that you've worn at Epitaph Records, involving so many bands that my friends and I love, it's it's kind of you're a unique figure. I don't I don't want to say you're enigmatic because you know <laughs> you're a real that would be a real person. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but it's it's really quite something. And so I kind of I I wanted to learn more about you and and your story. And so I, I was not anticipating going back uh, to. 1880 or 1881. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can call that story the original 80 to 85. And, and just yeah, right, that, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you you grew up in L.A.? I mean, cause if somebody who, like myself who did not grow up in Los Angeles, I grew up surrounded mm-hmm. by cornfields in Pennsylvania. What was, what was it like to grow up in Los Angeles as a kid and as a teenager? You know, well, I grew up, the, the area of L.A. that I grew up in was um, like my, you know, my 
puberty years, my formative years, I guess you would call them, was Arcadia, California, okay. which is um, it's right next to Pasadena in the San Gabriel Valley. It's, it's, it's beautiful, a decent enough place yeah. to live, you know, but I got to tell you back in the, I, I'm old. Okay. So, uh, I was born in 68. So I grew up in the seventies. There were smog alert. There's what they called a smog alert. And so right there in the San Gabriel Valley, when you can't see the mountains there, you know, it's a bad day. And that's the way it was frequently. There was such bad air quality that they just said, stay inside, no playing outside today. And so, yeah, for like, the air quality today is terrible because of all these fires. It was worse then. I imagine, you know? and, and that was that was kind of the the common con- understanding about Los Angeles growing up on the East Coast was in the eighties and nineties. This weight, the 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 gravitas of the smog and and how it affected people's livelihoods, and that was yeah. real. It was very real, yeah. And then you know, all the um, laws changed and things like that, and so people there there was less, you know. I mean, shit, when I was a kid, there was leaded gas, Yeah, <laughs> you know, so obviously things like that changed and it gradually cleared up largely. I mean, it's much, much better than it used to be. So, but as a kid, you know, in a, in the suburb like Arcadia, it was very much like, you know, be home when, you know, be home when the streetlights come on, that kind of thing. You know, it was very, very much a free reign to, to run our own kind of childhoods, me and my brother and sister mm-hmm. would just, we'd, we'd be out and about until whenever, you know, we'd just come home when it, when it got dark and it was dinner time or whatever, you know? Yeah. That's, that sounds nice. It sounds traditional. Yeah, it was, it was, it yeah. wasn't, you know, it, right. It wasn't, it was not like Arcadia was a dangerous place to live by any stretch. You know, it was nice. Yeah. It's beautiful over there. I never lived on that side of LA. My wife and I got married in Pasadena, so it's always kind of held a special place in our hearts in, in that nice. regard. And, and we always like going over there and exploring. Yeah. When you kind of, you know, were getting ready to, to graduate high school, I mean, did you live anywhere else? Did you go anywhere else for school or anything? Have you been in LA your whole life? Been in LA my whole life. Um, I went to, uh, well, right after high school, which was 86 when I graduated, um, we moved to, to Simi Valley originally. That's when we first moved out here. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Moorpark College for a little while. And then I went to Cal State Northridge for a little while. Right after that, kind of in that actually, is when I sort of got my internship at Epitaph. Mm-hmm. I basically hated my major. I was a business major. I just didn't like it. Uh, I didn't know what else to do, though. I, I just, I'm not very imaginative when it comes to picking a career. So I, I just didn't really know what kind of major I should take. And and my dad was a business major. So I'm like, all right, I'll just do that. And I, I didn't like it. And so when I got my internship at Epitaph, and actually, although I got to say the business major is the reason I even sought out an internship somewhere. Um, because even though I wasn't at the place in my academic career where it was time to go get an internship, I was sort of was just Maybe it was a subconscious way to to find a way out of it. I don't know, but um, it was like you were putting yourself in a sink or swim situation. Well, I'm stuck in this I, yeah, major yeah. and I don't really love it. Right. But if right, if it's right. what's going to carry me into the real world, I might as well start start the real world sooner than later. Yeah, yeah. In that sort of effort, I guess I went to a place called Best Records here in Simi Valley, where um, it was that quintessential record store where you go in and then the guy behind the counter gives you shit for buying the wrong record, you know, <laughs> you know, yes. And what was that movie? The clerk, not clerks. Was it clerks? Oh, high fidelity, high fidelity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. High fidelity. Um, it was very much that, 
Um, you don't want that. You and, don't want that record. You put that right, back, you right, right. <laughs> so he directed me to um, a Bad Religion record. And I had already actually, I had already gotten in, uh, No Control was the first record I got into for sure. Bad Religion. And, and Against the Grain was brand new. It just, like, maybe within the week had just come out. So he directed me to that record. And we were kind of talking and, and he said, you know, the band own their own label. And I was like, huh, what does that mean? What does that even mean? I don't know. You know, so I'm looking at the label on the back and it said Epitaph Records and they're based in Los Angeles. So with the brand new copy of Against the Grain in my hands, I drove home, called information to see if Epitaph Records had a listed phone number and they did. So I called it <laughs> and like at three o'clock in the afternoon, I got voicemail, which was not what I was expecting. I was f- expecting a full fledged kind of business, a right? Full on so operation. Was, yeah. Right, right. Very professional. And right. Turns out that it was really just Brett and Jay Bentley worked there and Fat Mike would help out from time to time. So I just left a message and I said, hey, I'm interested in working there. You know, can I? <laughs> And so eventually, uh, actually, um, maybe the next day or maybe later that day, even um, Jay Bentley called me back and I was absolutely floored. You know, I was I'm sitting there, you know, just absolutely enthralled with this band's music. And I'm on the phone with Jay Bentley looking at I'm looking at the CD book, like going, oh, my God, it's actually him. Were Holy you shit. expecting somebody from the band to call you back? Or you you really thought it was going to be somebody else who just worked yeah, there? I thought it would be some receptionist or you know, I don't know what I thought. Yeah. But so basically Jay told me, Hey, we need help, but we don't know what we need help with (laughs) or how to, how to incorporate you into our fold here. So I just kept trying back and I just kept calling over the next, uh, I want to say this was like October of 1990. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was November because I think the record actually dropped in November. But so then during this time period where I'm calling, that's when I saw bad or I went to go see Bad Religion play at the North Hollywood Theater with Pennywise and No Effects opening. And sure enough, Pennywise told everyone to tear their seats out because it was in a theater. And then there was a full blown riot at the North Hollywood Theater. So I did not get to see Bad Religion play at that time. So that was disappointing. I think that was like New Year's, New Year's weekend or something like that. So I just kept trying in, in, in the new year. And then finally I got Brett on the phone and he was like, you know what, just come in for an interview and we'll talk. So I went in there and still being my naive uh, green self, I went in and I, I was working at Save On Drugs at the time, by the way. If you don't know what Save On is, it's like CVS today. Yeah. So I went in and I, and I had my little tie on because I wanted to look professional. And I mean, it was just the dorkiest move in the world, but, um, well, let me, let, I let guess, me ask you, I guess, like, did you identify with the subculture of punk very rock? Much, okay. So you, it much. wasn't just that you loved the band and, and you kind of, you found this like niche opportunity. You, you really right. kind of identified with the punk rock subculture and, and do you remember like what your introduction to that was or who the bands um, that, that, that opened well, that door for you? The, the Vandals first record is probably the first yeah. punk record, you know, when in Rome is probably the first punk record that I ever listened to. And, you know, dead Kennedys and some of that are, I, I wasn't fully into punk yet at that time. I mean, I was, by the time I talked to bad religion, you know, t- talking to epitaph, but, um, you know, back in the mid late eighties, I was, I really was more of a goth kid. I was definitely, 
I was really angry, but dark and darkly angry. You sure. know, I was very, I was very much identifying with like the Bauhauses of the world and Sisters of Mercy and that kind of stuff. It's um, a great era for that very, yeah. music. I mean, that was was a good time. There's there's I'm there's definitely not bummed about being into those bands. You know, early Love and Rockets and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. I really was a big big fan of. Um, but but I liked the punk stuff as well. And then w- when I worked at Save On, my buddy Dan, I went over to his house after work one day, and he put on No Control, and it was the first minute, not even a minute, <laughs> the first notes. I was just like, oh my god, what is that? And so he immediately ran me a cassette of it and you just ran the whole thing front and back. So I just put it in my car and it just ran over and over and over again. Obviously I went and got suffer shortly after that too. <laughs> yeah, No control is such a unique because it starts with four kick beats, which is, um, yeah, I think it's actually three. Oh yeah. If you, if yeah. I could, be, um, but that is a little bit of trivia. You know where that comes from? I would love to know. I, I do not know. The Germs, and I believe the song is What We Do Is Secret. It's the first song on that Germs record. It has the same oh. intro, and that they lifted it from The Germs. They were such big Germs fans. Yeah, they've been pretty open about that, and, and that, that box has been reopened recently with a lot of press that the band has been doing, and, and Brett's, Brett's not very shy about putting over The Germs, so to speak, and, and shedding some light on them. That's That's really interesting. Yeah, we we actually have a picture of Darby Crash hanging in the office. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> Which wonderful. is totally random because every other picture in the office are like epitaph artists, you know. But there's that one of Darby Crash. So, can you speak to the reason why the Germs material isn't as readily available as I think it I wish should be? I, I wish I could. You know, I had I I, I only recently got GI on vinyl, and it cost me like fifty bucks. Yeah, you just don't um, see the records a lot, and I, I remember it's fully it was out of print. It was them mm. and Def Leppard were like the last two holdouts that weren't on Spotify, and then Def Leppard ended up there, <laughs> and I was like, "All right, well, I just got one more to wait for." But yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think ownership of the ownership of the tracks are probably uh, in some legal limbo, perhaps. I, I don't know. It's just, it's a real shame though that that record isn't more readily available. I love that record so much. And I, I feel like they're kind of missing out. I mean, I'm well aware that I'm saying this to an Angelino like yourself, so it, it, it doesn't necessarily reflect on, on what <laughs> you think. Preaching to the choir, yeah. Yeah, but it, it seems as if there's, uh, you know, obviously in Darby's absence, you, you can't have the germs playing, you know, the punk and disorderly festivals or, or going to Blackpool every year to do those big festivals or anything. But I feel like there's a segment of the younger generation that would be championing the germs a whole lot more if their stuff was more readily available and uh, more more accessible. I think I, you're right. I think the only thing I, I see consistently is is patches and t-shirts, which is cool. You know that's that's cool, but um, yeah, but that makes me wonder how many people wearing those patches and things don't really know the music. You know what I mean? Especially if they're kind of from a younger generation. It's like. Did you do the homework? Do you know that record? <laughs> right, right. And well, then you get into the whole, you know, Urban Outfitters, Ramones t-shirt. and Ugh, right. <laughs> Let me ask you just one question because I am a fucking obsessed with 80s movies. And you said you graduated <laughs> in 86. I did. So 82 to 86, what 80s movie most accurately captures your high school experience? Interestingly, and I don't know if this answers your question or not, but um, Anthony Michael Hall 
um, the actor. I don't know if you know who he is specifically. But I know he the was name. The main, Wait. He was the main actor in um, Sixteen Candles. Yes, yes. I was v- he, or I should say, he was very much my doppelganger <laughs> in <laughs> high school. And people used to come. There's there's a line in Sixteen Candles where his character said, "This is getting good." And so I had people coming up to me saying, "Dude, say it, say it, say this is getting good." So I, I kind of have to say that one, even though it's a horrible, horrible movie about date rape. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> um, it just sends a fucking terrible message. Um, but. I mean, for me, that 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 movie has a lot to do with it just because of that doppelganger aspect. But that, that's you know, a sufficient Breakfast answer, Club, Jeff. Yeah, that's a sufficient answer. Breakfast yeah. Club is a good one. Um, my, probably my favorite movie from the 80s is Better Off Dead. I just love that movie so much. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I have. I'm not as well versed in it as I am, you know. Fast Times or Just One of the Guys. Sure. I love Fast Times candles. too. <laughs> yeah. I didn't smoke pot in high school yet though, so I can't say that Fast Times was my uh, – <laughs> was re- wasn't my thing exactly. You know what I mean? I, 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 I don't think I actually saw the movie until maybe I was a little bit out of high school. Yeah. I don't remember. but um, Yeah. I mean there's, there's a whole lot more to it than just Spicoli, but Spicoli is kind of the lasting you – know, Totally. It's the yeah. only thing from the movie you can really impersonate besides Damone – it's probably the most memorable aspect of the movie for sure. Did you know that Damone owns a coffee shop right down the street from the North Hollywood theater that you were just referring to? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> he made me a cappuccino one time and I nearly, I nearly shit my pants. I was, I was, I, I didn't know what to say. I was just, I was about to start saying a Tongue cheap tied. trick to him. Yeah. <laughs> so you you start working at Epitaph and that's 1991. 91. Yeah. yeah. So coming up on 30 years. That's amazing. That's when Epitaph was in Hollywood. You guys yes. hadn't moved to Silver Lake yet at that point, right? No, no. As a matter of fact, the inter- the interview that I went in for was at a little house behind the Palladium on a little street called Vista Del Mar, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think um, there's a big because I think there's a big hole in the ground over there now. Maybe they filled it in, but they tore some of that neighborhood out. And it was the last time I, I saw Bad Religion about a year ago at the Palladium. I'm super cheap. And so I was just looking around the neighborhood for street parking because I didn't want <laughs> So I always kind of ended up on those streets and like Selma's usually good. And even if like, you go down to like Fountain or something, you can usually find some shit. But I was just, I was just amazed because there's there's new office buildings over there and Netflix has a new building and Emerson has a new building. And I, I was remembering from kind of the epitaph folklore that y- y- y'all had a house back there. Um, I, mm-hmm. I want, do you know if it's still standing? Last time I was there, it was still standing. It looked quite a bit different. Um, I think there was some security fencing put up and yeah. whatnot. Cause it's, it's not the best part of town, you know, still, tucked away behind yeah. things, you know, they're like, like Brett was telling me that he used to hear crack, you know, uh, crack whores and crack deals and all the, you know, people Jeez. getting sucked off right outside their window, you know, <laughs> but it was a <laughs> house, like, right? Oh when you guys God. were in there, it was, yeah. it was zoned as residential, correct? Zoned as residential. Yeah. But one, uh, but it was, so it, that, that house was part West beach recorders and part epitaph, um, mostly West beach. Um, it was mostly a recording studio mm-hmm. and they recorded a lot like no suffer, no control. Uh, the first Pennywise record, the first couple no effects records were recorded there. Mm-hmm. Like that house recorded some serious shit there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we shortly like, okay, so I had my interview in that house, but 
my the, the first bit of my employment was at a warehouse that was down on Santa Monica, just east of Vine. And that was also an interesting part of town. We uh we used to see quite a colorful neighborhood there. <laughs> yeah, I mean for the for those for listeners that don't know, that part of Hollywood, once you kinda get south of Santa Monica, it's it's kind of like the the warehouses or the satellite post production houses for some of the bigger studios. So it's like these big blocks that get very desolate very quickly. And uh, at night, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it it's, it's, it's weird, like this industrial kind of kind of ghost town. It's very strange. Um, yeah, yeah. And there are residences around there, though, too. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, it, but it still was very urban and just, um, like I remember one time walking into the office and, and there was a, 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 it was literally tipped up against the wall, a little cucumber tipped against the wall that had a condom <laughs> on it. <laughs> Couldn't figure that out for the life of me. I'm not sure why the condom was there and what it was being protected. Or why it was propped up. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, throw it away, do something, <laughs> throw it under the bush, whatever, you know? Yeah. Just, you know, how much growth was there at Epitaph from when you started? Cause you're famously kind of known as Jeff, Jeff Epitaph. You're the first yeah. employee. Like what was the growth like from when you first started in early 91, just up until, you know, and we'll get to this later in the conversation, but just up until like the big explosion of, of, the end of 93 into 1994 yeah, was it still know, a it pretty rinking ink operation not rinking ink was small it well i mean it, it really was small it was me and three four other people um but in terms of our bands you know we had um, we hadn't signed rancid yet but we had bad religion no effects uh the first pennywise record we had a band called down by law i mean we were definitely uh definitely growing like we were steadily growing from 91 to 92 no effects is well okay so fat mike started fat wreck and he put out the longest line ep and then shortly after that we put out white trash two ebs and a bean and that was highly anticipated. Like we sold a lot of records and we we're just like, oh, okay, this is good. So we're steadily growing and we got a couple more employees. You know, we got someone, I had been running the warehouse. Like that's how I got the jobs. I knew how to do shipping and receiving, uh, but I, my interests didn't lie there. You know, that's just kind of how I was able to, actually that's how Bad Religion was able to go on European tour, but keep the office open. It's because I knew how to do the shipping and receiving, but my interests were in, making records and working with bands. So they moved me into the front part of the office and um, we got a new guy, uh, this guy, great guy, John Wall. He was the singer for a band called Clawhammer. He ran the warehouse after that. And we got, you know, a couple new employees here and there. And that was only, you know, good, you know, two years, two and a half years. And then, and then the offspring, like, wow. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I, I, I kind of have a bunch of notes written down about this and they're all, scratched out because I, I don't I, I don't really know how to articulate the question so I think the best thing I can just think to ask you Jeff is how the fuck did that feel in the moment um surreal you know although although I gotta say you know the record before that they did called ignition I love that record like, I do too like the song yeah. dirty magic on there I thought that was a hit like I, I could totally see that being played on K Rock, you know. Um, I mean, I was wrong, and it wasn't played on K Rock. Well, I think they thought um, it was a hit too because they re-released it on that record they did about five years ago, and and they did they did justice by it. I thought it was a great 
redo. Did they really? I don't think I knew that. I'm going to have to go back and check that recording out. Yeah. So they re-recorded it and everything. They added to it. Maybe they kind of took some original stuff. The the original riff sounds Mm -hmm. like it could have been taken from it. But when it comes in, you know, it comes in with, it's definitely Pete's drums and it's definitely, you know, a whole lot of 21st century guitar power once once the song comes in. When I saw that they had redone that, I some of my friends were like, oh, that's lame. You know, I was like, fuck that. It's going to be great. And it is great. Um, it yeah, doesn't cool. have the I'll same the same aura and spookiness of the original, but it, it's cool. It's it's definitely nice. cool. Yeah. Nice. Um, but when, when Smash finally did come out, I mean, you know, when, when I first heard it on the radio, like I had heard some of our songs on the radio prior to that, but it was mostly like KXLU. Um, and that's not crazy. Like f- for people to understand in Southern California, hearing punk bands on the radio is not unusual, not, not unusual, especially bad religion. Cause yeah. they had, I mean, they got on Rodney on the rock well before I came on board, you know? Sure. Um, but you know, when you're hearing it midday driving down the freeway, it kind of blows your mind, <laughs> you know, imagine. I mean, I wasn't in the band or anything, obviously it would have been more mind blowing if I was in the band, obviously. But, um, you know, you, you could just, there was something palpable about it. That was just, you knew something was happening and it was like, you know, the front ed- edge of summer and it was, it just felt like it was going to be the summer hit. And we, and it was, it absolutely was absolutely. I mean, that was such a, that was such a huge record for, for everybody that I know. And it was in a lot of ways, like the perfect gateway record, you know, and, and yeah. a perfect gateway band, because I, I think that the offspring kind of lend themselves to, to sounding and uh, like other bands that maybe do some aspects of their sound, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit better than them. Uh, you know, it just, uh, I think bad religion is a little bit better at the faster stuff and, and, uh, slicker and and same could be said for pennywise maybe and I, i'm not putting down the offspring at all because they're they're one of my all-time goats but uh you know i i think speaking to them in that moment is that they they really kind of captured the imagination of a lot of really really young kids and it was a perfect yang to the yin if you will of of dookie as well mm-hmm. were you guys just all kind of holding on by you know, like white knuckled holding on to this monster that you had to tame? Or did you feel like you had control over it kind of personally and collectively as, as a company? I, I can't speak for Brett, but I mean, I, I just historically, I know that he was hanging on by the seat of his pants and he was turning down multi-million dollar offers to sell the company to him or to upstream the record to him. And he was just... Like, fuck you guys, we can do this. And and I don't know how he thought that we could do this, but he did and we did. And yeah. um, it was very much flying by the seat of our pants. I mean, I, there were times where we had so many records that wouldn't fit into our, our building. You know, the, the pallets wouldn't fit. So we had five, 10 pallets stacked on the sidewalks around the corner and we would have to stay there and wait outside until you know, a truck came to pick them up to take them in, to an wow. outside place. It was just, it was just insane how many records that we were making to, to keep yeah. up. Um, it was, it was insane. I don't need a, a count of how many hats you've worn at Epitaph, but could you speak a little bit to how your role mm-hmm. there has, has evolved? Yeah. You know, when I first started, it was really just, 
the hat that I was wearing was was w- whatever needed to get done. Like that first summer when I was doing shipping and receiving, um, I was also making calls to college radio stations. We had multiple distributors back then. That's one of the ways that we grew quickly is that we d- weren't relying on one distributor. You mean multiple um, distributors in so North would, America? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We had Caroline, uh, R.E.D., uh, God, I can't even remember all the names of all the distributors, but we had little ones and big ones and, but they were all independent. We would sell to all of them. They, you know, we were able to do it without them requiring an exclusive deal. So, um, Brett liked that aspect of it. Didn't want to put all of our bags, all of our eggs into one basket. That obviously changed later. Now, where was I going with this? Um, I I asked you about uh, the different, kind of the different roles you've had. Yeah. Right. So I, I was, I would make collection calls to the distributors if they owed us money. What else? Um, college radio, shipping and receiving. What else was there back then? Publicity. You know, I would call, like we had a band called Clawhammer, not Clawhammer. We did have a band called Clawhammer, but we had a band called Coffin Break. Um, and I used to, you know, call promoters and send them posters. And, uh, you know, so I was doing tour promotions and uh, all, you know, Whatever needed to be done, basically. Yeah, and then you kind of <laughs> um, shifted into A and R, right? Because you well, it, sort of. In an I mean, official capacity, I guess. I mean, I'm. I never really like to say that I'm in A and R because I'm. I'm really not. Brett's Brett is the A and R guy. I mean, I'm in A and R in sort of more of an administrative capacity. As we got more employees, we were able to get people who specialized in certain areas and my interest was in literally making records. And that's kind of how I wound up where I am today, which is in production. I'm the the production manager at Mm -hmm. Epitaph. So I still work, I still get to work with all of our bands. I work with them in the studio. I do studio services. I'm, I, I book mastering. I, I get LP lacquers made. Um, I deal with graphic designers uh, although we do have two graphic designers in house, in house, yeah, you guys have really a lot gr- of grown over these last twenty years. It seems like, yeah, definitely. Uh, although, uh, interestingly, our our staff size hasn't changed that much. I mean, we did balloon up to, you know, maybe forty, forty five employees at one point, and we would have to do you know a little bit of laying off, which always sucks. Yeah, it was never good, but. Um, we, we have about, I want to say we have about 30 employees now. Um, and we have offices in Amsterdam, Toronto, and Melbourne. And then we have, now we have an employee in Japan. I'm not sure what city he's in. I, I, I'm assuming he's in Tokyo, but I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. Um, so we have international people around the world that work for us directly, but they maybe, maybe they work in someone else's office, like, like in, in Japan, I think yeah, they work in someone else's office. Absolutely. We don't, you know. Now that it's been so long, kind of since that explosion in the mid '90s, from from my perspective as a, as a young kid in a small town on the other coast, and you know, ordering these records or finding them wherever I could, and then just kind of feasting on them. I mean, it was it was pivotal. Like this, it sounds cliche to say, but it it truly changed my life, and it it set my life on a different trajectory, on a different path than if I would have never discovered that kind of music and and that subculture. Do you see yourself reflected? In that monumental change, not in my life necessarily, but just in the, kind of the generational shift of, of things that happened, or are you able to look at it more objectively as just kind of, you know, the place where you went to work all the time? Like, can, can you kind of, do you feel the weight of that 
um, or, or is it something that That's you can kind question. of like, you can kind of leave at the door before you, you walk in from work? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I think my ego is, is probably a little bit too big to say that it was just a place for me to go to work. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, I mean, I take so much pride in everything that we did, you know, and I, and I hear what you're saying a lot, actually, you know, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not so prideful as to say, you know, something like, Oh, you're welcome, you know, because obviously <laughs> I'm not in those bands, you know, but, but thank I'm you, so Mr. Jeff. Thank to, you, Mr. Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> right. Mr. Brett. Um, no, but I'm just so proud to have been a part of it and to be a part of that legacy that, that I, I love that I was a part of it and, and I love that it had a positive impact on your life and so many other lives. I, you know, I'm, I'm not so egotistical as to say that I really had a hand in it because that, I think that really is the music, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was, I was helping with making records and getting them promoted and, and make, making sure that they're available to people. I, I was instrumental in that regard, but you know, I, I was very much a cog than, you know, than the creative force. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I've answered your question. No, exactly, absolutely. That, but, yeah, for sure. It, it, it sounds um, like it's, it, 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 it was too important and it was too significant to just be like, you're going into Dun Dunder Mifflin. You know, it, it was, yeah. <laughs> it, it was, it, it, it had, uh, it had significance to it even though you weren't the one that was strumming the guitar and, and, and singing right. the songs. You know, yeah. yeah, working in in the entertainment, in, in art, essentially, you know, it's it's definitely not the same as selling paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, because that, that creative aspect definitely changes things. And it, it, it makes it so that there there's, um, God, it's so cheesy to say this, but there's magic involved. You know, it's like there's, that's the power of music, though. Of course, that's the not power cheesy. Of music. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, you know, it's like, like I said, I thought Dirty Magic was going to be a hit, and it wasn't. But there was magic in the next record. Yes. <laughs> Lightning struck, and and we had actually a few songs on that record that were, were pretty big. And and it just, it it changed everything. And, and and not just for the offspring and for Epitaph, but every single release that we had in '94 and '95 was, you know, I don't know, tenfold bigger than it otherwise would have been. Yeah. You know. Do you ever look back at anything, or can you remember times when you were in the moment? And and sometimes I, I imagine it. It's hard to see the forest through the trees in these moments, especially when you're riding a wave of success, but can you look back at any records that, that you did at Epitaph that you thought this is going to be huge and it just didn't. And then records that did really well that s surpassed your expectations and really kind of shocked you. Um, and, well, and we're not putting nothing. any artists under the bus here. You know, I'm, I'm not digging for dirt. It's just, <laughs> right. uh, you guys have such a storied, uh, canon and catalog. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Well, everything paled compared to the offspring since then. Yeah. You know, we have, we've, we've had big records since then, but you know, I think the end, the end number was like 11 million worldwide, something like that. We haven't had anything that's come close to that. We have had some very good success, but has there been, let's see, let me think, you know, I mean, God, it's hard to say what, one of my personal record industry faults, shortcomings, if you will, is that. I couldn't pick a hit record to save my life. 
like that's not that's not my strong suit at all like my favorite songs off of certain records are generally deep cuts <laughs> i don't know i just I, I i tend to like things that are a little left of center I'm, I'm the same way and i always see this when when the bands release collections I'm just like, oh, right. I realize, yeah, the band doesn't like the same songs that I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I mean, I'm looking at what? a poster of No Substance in the Gray Race in my office right now. So, you know, that's that's the Bad Religion era that I have a proclivity for. So I, I, I feel like I'm in the same mindset as you. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, yeah, totally. Um, but uh, if I'm thinking back to some of the records in like the mid-2000s, you know, we did have some some bands like Motion City Soundtrack, who I thought... Yeah, Commit This to Memory it, is a fucking fantastic record. Yeah, you know, it's like, I, I I like that record. It's not exactly my cup of tea, you know, but I thought for sure it was going to be big, you know. And I thought that maybe at least partially because I didn't love it. <laughs> wholeheartedly if that makes sense you know what i mean i do, yeah i don't mean to, i don't mean to disparage that record because it's 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 good it's just it's just it isn't my wheelhouse for what is like oh you know up on a pedestal and uh to be revered you know like like the way bad religion is for me sure. you know um it that's the great thing about music though is that it is subjective and you know people can take it with a grain of salt and and you know so so yes, there are definitely records that I thought would hit and didn't. Um, although I've become less and less surprised when they don't. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'm cynical now uh, or, or more realistic. Probably more realistic, just because, man, that magic—it's it's hard to come by. It really is. Yeah, and once you have, you know, they say it's it's easier to get a job when you already have a job. <laughs> So if, yeah. if you have the offspring, which is just tearing it up, then yeah, like Outcome the Wolves is probably going to do, you know, better than a record that, you know, comes out 15 yeah. years in the future. But yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, that is the next, that, that record is the next record that went gold after the offspring. Yeah. And, and I think that in a lot of ways, that record truly kind of encapsulates the label in the most accurate sense, because, you know, they stayed you know, with the exception of one record, I guess, technically, but, but Rancid stayed, um, you know, is it, is it something that you at the label have ever kind of really thought about? Like the offspring, uh, you know, I, I know that everything's good now and there's, you know, the whole sellout thing is just such a outdated, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's not even worth mentioning, but you know, when, when the offspring, it's like, they got so big and, and Green Day got so big that like, they were so far removed from so many of their peers. Whereas, you know, the Rancids and the No Effects and the Pennywise, those bands were still kind of in this, they seemed like they were in the same arena, whereas the Offspring were kind of on Mars because they were definitely, you know, definitely on a different level for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's funny that you should say that, bring that up because um, I heard that the Offspring, you know, right when that, when that record started blowing up, yeah, I started hearing cries of sellout, you know, but go back and listen to that record man that record is punk as fuck they did not change a thing from what they were doing previously it just so happened that they had that catchy little riff yeah and and you know it just it caught on that you know there's it it was definitely not a sellout record now the record after that (laughs) you know i'm not going to defend because it wasn't on (laughs) 
that's the other poster <laughs> I have in my office. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, are, are you more surprised all these years removed from Jeff Forrest Birkenstocks? Are you surprised more that you're kind of immortalized in this song by no effects or that you were spotlighted and there was a feature about you on Birkenstocks website? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the song itself was definitely more surprising. Okay. Um, I figured the, as much. Yeah. The surprise from Birkenstocks was what took them so long <laughs> yeah. because, you know, it, it's like the, the word is literally in the song, you know, and, and I, and I kind of, not that I, not that I thought that they would necessarily do some kind of brief expose on me or anything like that. That was definitely a surprise as well, but it's, it surprised me that, Let's see, that was in 2017, I think, when they did that. So, you know, it was 23 years after the song came out. You know, like, where you guys been? They hired a new doing? publicist. They figured it out. <laughs> that That is what happened. They had they, no not, not, not a publicist, but like a lifestyle person. Oh, my goodness. You know, and, and that's how. And then that lifestyle person started like Googling. And that's how they came up. They came across me. Oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's great. I, I, there's only really one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. And, and it, most, I would say most punk rockers that are, are your age and I'm not calling you old, you called yourself old. I would never, I would never denigrate you like that. <laughs> um, but I would say that they, they graduate out of that kind of DIY warehouse sort of you know, version of punk rock and, and they're a little bit more home bodied or they're, you know, they'll go see a show at the Palladium or maybe at the Roxy if they don't think it's going to sell out and it won't be too crowded or whatever, you know, but (laughs) you, you, uh, are in a band with, with a good friend of mine, Jim in this band, Total Massacre Mm -hmm. and a warehouse punk band. I mean, you guys have shows and rehearse and record at, at the wonderful, this place fucking saved my life, you know, before the pandemic <laughs> at, at Beer City in, in Van Nuys. You guys are, Jim's lyrics are, are so beautiful and so blatant and just so, that's just what we need right now. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Are, are you are you kind of scratching a proverbial itch by being involved in a thing like that? Or, or is that really kind of like what's inside of you at, at this point and at this kind of stage in your punk rock career or whatever you want to call it? I think... Th- <laughs> I mean, it's both. I mean, I'm definitely scratching an itch because because when you have an itch, you ha- you have to scratch it, right? Yes. So to that end, yeah. I mean, it's it's both scratching an itch and doing something I feel like I need to be doing. the The fact that it's this what's the word? Great. Relevant. <laughs> yeah. Relevant. <laughs> well, thank <yeah>. you. <laughs> thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, it it definitely it speaks to Jim's lyrics. Mike writes occasional lyrics too, but they're not quite as um, uh, sharp mm-hmm. as, as Jim's Jim, ha- Jim is like, he's like, you know, a surgeon with his, with his scalpel, you know, he's got a wit about the way he writes lyrics. Like I, I, f- I feel like a lot of other bands that try to do something like that. It's just, it feels gimmicky, but yeah, Jim- no, very much so. He's really a smart guy. Yeah. And, um, I think that's what separates him from other lyricists. And I'm not going to, Man, I want to throw someone under the bus so bad, but I'm not going to. But there's another band that is tr- that tries to be political, and to me, they just suck at it. You know, I'm not going to say who they are, but um, maybe I'll tell you off the record after this. But um, 
I just the fact that we have a lyricist like Jim really added to the the need to do this. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. like we were doing me and Jim and Mike were doing Punk is Dead before this, um, which was Grateful Dead songs John Punk Rock style. <laughs> I, I don't know that. if you knew that. I do but, remember that. I never saw yeah. you guys, but I do remember that. Yeah. And it was super fun. Obviously doing Grateful Dead songs, punk rock style is not normal. <laughs> and it was super fun and it took a lot of people off guard. Um, but it sort of pissed off both sides, which is great too. Yeah. But then, but then when we started doing originals for me it was just like this whole other, uh, it, it created a whole new need in me. You know, even though I'm not the one writing the lyrics, I just I I got to where I wanted to be the best that I Mike I wanted my contributions to be the best that they could be. Like I started, I already played bass a little bit because of Punk Is Dead, but I I started taking bass lessons and I re, and oh, like cool. I started learning how to record and learn how to mix and master and like because I wanted to be fully DIY, so I mix all of our stuff as well. And it wasn't out of necessity; it was out of desire. I wanted I wanted my contributions to be more than they otherwise would because I'm not a lyricist and I'm not, uh, you know, I don't write Mike's riffs. Um, so I wanted to contribute in other ways. And so that's sort of how I, I found a path to do that. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. And I, I can't speak highly enough about Total Massacre. So for everyone listening, we'll, we'll be sure to plug it in the uh, in the beginning and end of this as well. So oh, thanks so yeah. much. Well, thanks, Jeff. I, I really appreciate you doing this, man. It's it's good to talk it's a to pleasure. you. And, for sure. And there you have it. My interview with Jeff Abarta from Epitaph Records, from Jeff Wears Birkenstocks, from Total Massacre. And speaking of Total Massacre, their lead singer and lyricist Jim just signed on to be the official political correspondent of the Berman Hour podcast. Jim, what have you got for us? Uh, well, Jeff, it looks like everything is completely fucked. Uh, back to you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, thank you to our sponsors at High Spirit Shirts on Instagram. And, of course, everyone at New Wave who's bringing us Flow State Coffee. Get 10% off your order at noowave.co slash B-E-R-M-A-N. Thanks, everyone. The Berman Hour Podcast. We'll see you next time.